received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. <clears throat> For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we understand from conservative scholarship that the first time the Lord's Supper's ever dealt with in Scripture is here because the Gospels were not written until later so that uh, instead of us being there in the upper room with Christ, as we'll find out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and get that narrative, uh, God revealed this to Paul, and Paul is dealing with church problems and disorders from chapter 11 through 14. The first one is the place of women in the church and acknowledging the rightful place they have to their husband's leadership. And now it comes to this matter of uh, how they were coming to the Lord's table and how it was being abused. Now, two things were going on. According to Jude, uh, the early church had what they called a love feast. And that is they would uh, come together and have a corporate meal together. And uh, it was more like a potluck. Uh, but the way it was going is that the wealthy or well-off believers were showing up a, a bit early. And it was as though they were having their private meal there at the church. Well, there was a problem. Uh, the church was the only place where slave and free could meet in the same meeting. And so the slaves and those who were uh, employed uh, as the lower class people, they would come in later to the meeting. Uh, they had to work a longer shift, let's say, work into the evening. While the wealthy, they could show up plenty early. They had plenty of time. And so uh, they would get to eating and uh, be just licking their chops as they knocked off the steak, the ribs, the fish, and all the goodies and, and uh, enough drink to get drunk. And then later on in the meeting would come these uh, poor people 
the people that didn't have such, and if they had anything, it was meager, and even some uh, had to sit through watching them eat while they went hungry, for they had nothing to eat. So an environment was being created in which divisions, a class division was being made among them. Uh, Poor boys were made to feel poor. Those who had became gluttonous, uh, insensitive. And uh, Paul is saying, there must be divisions among you to manifest those who have God's approval and those who do not. Now, why are you causing the division? Well, you're causing it through selfish. Uh, the meal has become the focus. Uh, a big bash, a big party has become your focus. Matter of fact, you don't care if you eat so much that your brother goes hungry, you'll eat so much as to be in a drunken state by the time you come to the Lord's Supper. So this is bringing about severe discipline in the church. Uh, God is killing some people, he says. Some are being uh, made uh, feeble, powerless is the word. Others were weak. God was certainly upset with what was going on. So in early church history, probably within 100 years, they stopped the agape feast altogether. By the way, most of the eating we do in this church is free to everybody. You just got to show up. Now, we can't do that. When's the last time you've been charged a meal around here? You know what's good about that? It can avoid the haves and the have-nots. But they were fostering that and creating that. And so he writes to them on two levels. The way you're coming before the Lord's Supper and doing all this stuff is wrong. And then we want to be sure we get an understanding of what the Lord's table is about. Because uh, we have different views, uh, both from a Roman Catholic viewpoint of what the communion, the Lord's Supper is like. They would call it a mass. Uh, Lutheranism has a different take on it than we do. Uh, Calvin, uh, he influenced some Presbyterians in this area, but not all. Uh, he had a, a little bit different view. And then there's a guy coming out of Switzerland uh, that took what is known as the Swingley view. And so, because we take something like this seriously, I thought we'd better do a little study to see what the different traditions tell us. And uh, we want to notice from verse 23, uh, the meaning of one word, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you by divine revelation, since Paul wasn't there, the Lord revealed this to him, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Now, that little word is, is the debate. Because Catholicism says it is turned into the literal blood and body of Christ once the priest has said the blessing over it. Uh, Lutherans say the is means something else. So uh, you've got to go to school a bit with me. If you're, how many of you grew up Roman Catholic? 
Okay, you, you'll verify if I'm saying something heretical or if I'm quoting the catechism right, okay? Because I'm reading some of the Roman Catholic catechism. Transubstantiation is what they call what happens at communion. I, I bring the uh, wafer, uh, I bring the cup, and uh, they believed in transubstantiation, which simply means a change of substance. That once the priest prays over this, it in some way literally is transformed into the actual blood and body of Christ. Uh, the whole substance of it is changed. <clears throat> and in their mass, they would say in a mass that the sacrifice of Christ is reenacted. The Catholic mass would say that Christ is being presented afresh on an altar under the appearance of bread and wine and offered to God for the living and the dead. For you can have a mass in the Catholic Church for the dead uh, and pay for a mass. And we are putting Christ to death again, but they say it's by means of non-bloody sacrifices. The cup and the bread become the sacrifice. Let me give you a, an answer in one of their catechism. Is the Holy Mass one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross? You hear the question? Is the Mass one and same as the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? This is their answer. The Mass is one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross, inasmuch as Christ, who offered himself a bleeding victim on the cross to his heavenly Father, continues to offer himself in an unbloody manner on the altar through the ministry of his priest. So a truly understood Catholic mass and a true Catholic that went through catechism understands in some way uh, Christ is being put to death again. Uh, there's being an atonement of some sort being made, and that's why communion is a high, holy, uh, very mysterious thing, and especially if a Catholic grew up hearing it all in Latin. It really, what's going on here, but the Mass is what, something that is a reenactment of the cross. We just simply take the blood away, and we make the bread and the Jews stand for that. Now, the Lutheran view, uh, Luther growing up as an uh, Augustinian monk, he uh, uh, didn't go that far, and he developed a view known as consubstantiation, simply the Latin word with, uh, uh, in, under the bread. And so what he said is uh, the bread and the juice don't undergo a change in themselves metaphysically, but some way Christ is alongside of this wine and alongside of this bread in such a way that it's a change with him next to it. It's almost like you're ingesting Christ because he's with it some way. And uh, so he would not say it would be blasphemous to Luther to say it's just bread and wine. He would say, no, 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 no. Something, Christ is in it in such a way 
that he's right alongside of it. Maybe we didn't turn the elements into it, but he's alongside of it. Well, John Calvin comes along, another reformer in the 1500s, uh, and he propagated what is known as the real presence of Christ uh, is at the communion table. It's hard to get a handle on it, but he would say that the Holy Spirit makes Christ so real to the believer that in some way uh, Christ will be at the communion in a way he's not in anything else we do. That the real presence of Christ is attached to the ordinance he gave for he said, I want you to remember me by this and we can expect a real Christ to show up at anything called the Lord's Supper to remember him. It's not just bread and juice like most of us think of it. If it's just a ritual, we're all sinning to take communion tonight. God is not pleased with rituals. He wants reality. There's got to be a reality behind what we do, behind the symbol. But Calvin was very, what you would call uh, mystical, uh, spiritual. They took communion so uh, serious that it was the high mark of a church's life. I grew up where we did good to take it twice a year. And I didn't know what it meant when I took it, Harvey. It just was uh, just kind of an add-on thing. But these churches would often take it every week because it was the most sacred part of the service. We've replaced, I think, either preaching or music for communion because let's get that out of the way. It's why I don't like to take it Sunday morning as my favorite. They always took it in the evening. The reason why, I don't want to be rushed. This isn't the tail of the donkey that we tack on in the service. It's supposed to have meaning. It's supposed to be reflective. It's supposed to be, what, it, what am I remembering? What am I taking? And that's where Roman Catholics can beat us in the, uh, uh, what I would say, the sacredness of it. And of many Protestants, that they just throw it down, drink, boom, I took communion. What did you do? I don't know, but I did it. It's worthless. And he's telling them, you're coming to the Lord's table with uh, class warfare, stepping over fellow members of the body. You're in such a crisscross state of mind in your heart, you could in no way be knowing what you're doing at the Lord's table. And I'm going to kill some of you. I'm going to make some of you sick because I will protect my own table. That's how serious the Lord was about it. And he's warning them. Uh, now, let me uh, give you some arguments just to answer why we know this could not have been, this is my body. Well, when I take it, that it's not the literal body, and it's not the literal blood of Christ. I give you some arguments just to how we answer that is. Why does the is not mean it is? Uh, number one, when Christ took that bread and when he took the cup, he was present in the room with them. Do you think he is saying, as it were, uh, this is my body? In other words, transfer it to that. No, no, Here's, he's in his real body in the room. So he, they know that this cannot be, this is my real body. It's going to stand for my body when I'm gone. It's going to be representative. 
It's going to symbolize my body, but it's not my, I'm here in a body, when he said it. Number one. Two, uh, is is not always taken literally. Now, now watch it, because I think I'm, I try to be literal. But there's places where is is used to say it symbolizes. Let me give you an example. The field is the world, Matthew 13. What does that mean? The field that I'm telling you about where you sow this seed is going to be representative of the world. Do you follow that? Okay. These two women are two covenants, Galatians. These two women are the covenants. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's Sarah and Hagar. They represent two covenants. The is stands for representing. Uh, the seven heads are seven mountains, and they are seven kings, Revelation. The mountain stand represent something else. So it's used that way. The idea of drinking literal blood and eating literal flesh said to a bunch of Jews that all their lives were told you can't eat the blood would be obnoxious, sacrilegious, and blasphemous to them. And there was no outrage in the room that you're not telling me to drink blood. I had people when I first started the church that left our meetings because they thought we drank blood at communion. And they got the word out. They, they drank blood for communion. Sure didn't help our church grow. Uh, then, fourthly, uh, it's being built on a fading ordinance, the Passover. And the Passover was full of symbolism. Uh, the different foods stood for slavery stood for their hardship under Pharaoh. So they understood, the Jewish mind understood the food and the ceremony is a reenactment of our hardships down in Egypt. So for these Jewish disciples in that upper room, they knew he was uh, instituting a new supper with new symbolisms that now didn't point back to a lamb, but pointed to the one standing in front of them. From now on, I want you to come together and when I eat bread at a restaurant, it's not representing the body of Christ. It's representing a gluttonous appetite. <laughs> it's when I take it here in these meetings, then ordinary bread takes on the message behind it in that context is what he wants me to get. This is my body, which is for you, which, by the way, I don't want to say too much, is some of the most spectacular language in all the Bible. If you just said this phrase, this is my body for you. Just think about that for a week. A body totally devoted for me. And this is deity in a body. Just to reflect on that one little phrase, my body for you. So, we uh, uh, understand the is to say this is a symbol of my body. I just thought, uh, you know, I, I've got family pictures, but I, I go through them. Uh, but if I pulled out a picture of my wife and I showed you, this is my wife, would you be able to translate that? Do you think I'm able to carry my wife in the wallet? She's not that thin. <laughs> Neither are you. It stands for this picture 
represents my wife. Hey, see my wife. See my grandchildren. I got pictures of grandchildren to just show I'm in good standing. I keep pictures. I hide them as much as I can. But, you know, they're stuffed in there. See my grandchildren. Oh, is that your grand? Well, it really isn't. It's just a, a representation of. You get it, don't you? So when we take communion, it's God's photo album. This is my son on preview. And when we take, we're going to baptize nine people tonight, five junior hires and four adults. And as we baptize them, we say, behind this water is a message that I died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. And what's greater than the ritual is the reality behind it. We're only going to give you a photo album picture. Hey, I'm declaring to you what's really happened to me. I've been joined to Jesus Christ, and I want to declare it publicly. Now, that has meaning. And that's why we all clap at the baptism and act a little crazy, because we're celebrating a great truth. So that's the picture album. Now, why in the world would Jesus want us to be taking this? I want to give you six reasons why we take communion and what should take place as we do it. First of all, it's a remembrance. Verse 24, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And uh, it's not a mass. It's not to be taken uh, with gloom. In Acts, when they took it, they took it with joy. Uh, we don't re-crucify Christ. We remember something that happened, and it really is remembering how I became saved. What's the basis of me going to heaven? It's really a reenactment of the gospel. I am saved by a gospel that cost the life of the Son of God, and I celebrate the Son of God came in a body, and they died of this is death, and I'm going to remember it and call it to mind, keep it fresh as it were in the frontal part of my mind for all of my life, and in case I get sluggish, uh, forgetful, as often as you do it, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. We take communion in this church the second Sunday night of the month. We take it the fourth Sunday in the morning. And I, I quite frankly, the elders ever want to move to take it weekly, I'll shout, hallelujah, let's do it. Because I believe in it. It's not ritual, it's reality. Spurgeon took it every Sunday for all of his ministry, and it never got old. When I'm at Tony Evans Church in Dallas, they take it, he has a brother in background, took it every Sunday. We took it 10 minutes in groups. It was wonderful. It's not ritualistic if you know what's behind the bread and the cup. In other words, it gets ritualistic for me to keep bringing Jesus up. I don't want to just make it a, a ritual. Well, it's a ritual because you don't understand what you're doing. When you understand it and you know the message behind it, it is not ritualistic. It is a celebration. It'd be like, I hate to have pictures of my wife and kids around because you might get the feeling I'm married. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm suspicious of a guy that didn't have at least one photo. Because you want people to know the people you love in your life, right? So, this is God's photo album. I love what Ralph Martin said about memory. To recall in biblical thought means to transport an action which is buried in the past 
in such a way that its original potency and vitality are not lost, but are carried over into the present. In remembrance of me, then, is no bare historical reflection of the cross, but a recalling of the crucified and living Christ in such a way he is personally present in all of his fullness. That's what it means to call him up. Bring him up. Bring him up. And it's so easy, even in church, not to bring him up. That's where I love the story that E.B. Hill, I first heard him tell it, that he, he had a woman in his church and he had an evangelist. And uh, E.V. wanted to tell him, says, I've got a woman in my church that's a bit odd. Uh, she gets a little out of sorts in the meeting. And the evangelist says, what is that? says, well, if you get to preaching and you get a jag along in your sermon where Christ isn't mentioned, she starts saying, bring him up. Bring him up. So I just want to tell you, if you go very long without saying Christ, he's going to say, bring him up. And sure enough, bring him up. He'd go a little while, bring him up. We need to bring him up. Communion is bringing him up. Let's not talk about the budget. Let's not talk about the building. Let's not talk about if it's too loud or too soft or too cold, too hot. Bring him up. Bring him up. That's what church is about, bringing him up. I might feel as if I just hit a kick in here. <laughs> might have to go to E.V. Hill's church, though. Let's see. Uh, the second thing that we would note about it uh, is it's not only uh, uh, this remembrance, it's a communion. And he says that strongly in chapter 10, in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or be the word communion. If you want the Greek word, it would be koinonia. It is a sharing. We're participant in the blood of Christ. Well, what's that? I participate of the benefits of his death. I'm not crucifying him. I'm not drinking his blood. But I am rejoicing that I've reaped the benefits of his blood. And what does his blood stand for? It stands for the cross. We're not talking just blood plasma. It was shorthand for the cross work. I am a participant in the benefits of the cross work for which he died. So it, it is a communion to me. I'm a participant. I'm in the loaf. I'm in the body. And I've partaken of the death of Christ. Just think, he didn't just die for the world. I could say, I could personally say, he died for me. I'm a participant through the grace of God. It is thoroughly called a Eucharist. It's the word thanksgiving, and it's used in verse 24 uh, that uh, he gave thanks, and so they took the word thanksgiving there in high churches, Episcopalian, uh, maybe even Catholic. You'll, you, you'll hear the word the Eucharist. It's a good word, uh, and it just means the thanksgiving meal. We're giving thanks for our salvation and how it came. How did it come? Through God in a body who died on a cross. So we give thanks. So it's a great time to be thankful. 1125, it is uh, a symbol of the new covenant. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. Now let's stop. Is the cup the new covenant? 
it is a symbol of the new covenant. It signifies the new covenant. And what is the new covenant? Well, we understand the new covenant to be the work of God in the hearts of believers after the law ended. And based upon the death of Christ, he initiated a new covenant with his people. He abrogated the old covenant. We're not under the law. We're not under bloody sacrifices. We're not under a Levitical priesthood. We now have a new high priest in the heavens who made one sacrifice for all time, and the new covenant is not written on stone, but it's written on the heart. And Paul could say to the Corinthians, you, I don't need a letter of recommendation when I come to you, for you are my epistle, written upon the clay tablets of your heart by the Spirit of the living God. The law was by the letter, but we are the people of the Spirit. So the real one that in, lets you know you're under this new uh, contract with God based upon the cross the Holy Spirit is there to say, this is regeneration in your heart, a new birth, uh, a, a new heart, uh, energized by the Spirit. You've got 10 times more than Abraham ever dreamed of having. We were talking in our Timothy class the other night. Who was the greatest prophet ever born to men? John the Baptist. He's in Timothy. John the Baptist. And what did Jesus say? He said, but the least in my kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. How's that so? You know more about Messiah? You know more about his work than the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. You know more than Isaiah. You've experienced it, seen it, believed it. It's already happened. Isaiah never saw him coming out of the grave necessarily, maybe the end of 53 of Isaiah. But I've got in on more knowledge of God in this new covenant than the greatest prophet in the old covenant. You've got a ton in Christ. You are celebrating a new relationship based with God where the Spirit is the energizer, where the cross is the payment, where I go through not fallible priest, but one high priest in the heavens. I am under a new arrangement with God, totally made on the basis of the death of Messiah. I'm under a new covenant. I celebrate that. You ought to celebrate it. Thank God you're not under the law. God kill all of us. You wouldn't make it. Uh, I mean, we just have to quit meeting as a church. It'd be too many of us dead. Just like if he killed everybody here today that has lied to God this week. Man, he'd eliminate our population. You know, especially if you lied to him about money. Going right on. Because that's what Ananias and Sapphira lied about. When the money came, they got real greedy. Have you ever told God, if you bless me, I'll give? And when it came in, that money got bigger than life. Say, well, God, I didn't know you'd give me this much. I often tell the story I told God when I went to a little church out of Bakersfield. God, whatever you give me, we started a building program, I'll give you half. And this little church of about, oh, 90 people, 
I assumed they'd give me $200. I drove down there, stayed a few days. So, you know, if they give me $200, I'll put $100 in the stewardship program. Praise the Lord. Well, they gave me $1,500. Man, I said, God, I didn't know that. I promised you 100 I promised you 100 you, you play games with me. Well, dummy, you get 750 Well, I wasn't calculating that way. I just, that offering got so big, I said, boy, be careful before you promise half the honorarium. So now one, I ask him, how much will you get? No, not really. I don't. Uh, God, just keep your promise. And remember, you're under a covenant where Christ kept the promise. It's not a conditional promise. I loved it when he made it with Abraham. He put him to sleep because he knew he couldn't keep anything. He put him to sleep, made the covenant, said, I'm going to bless you. He said, well, I didn't walk through the meat with you. No, I didn't want to base it on a fallible man. I'm basing it upon my character. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make you the father of nations, and the Messiah is going to come through you, and you're not worthy of any of it, but I'm basing it on my character, and I'm taking an oath on top of the covenant that I'll bless you that way, and he has, and he is. And we have become children of Abraham by faith. It's a proclamation, verse 26. Uh, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Isn't that amazing? Every time you take this, some way, you who've been wanting to preach but don't know how, this is where you can proclaim the gospel. I, I mean, it's loaded with significance from a divine viewpoint. When that bread, when you understand, this is my Savior's body for me, this is his death for me, every time I partake of it with that in mind, I'm proclaiming the good news. The reason I'm going to heaven is a body given and a death given, and God saved me on the basis of it. Uh, so I'm proclaiming good news, good news. If you come and take communion with us tonight, you'll be helping proclaim to the world what they can't perceive in the symbols because they don't know what they mean. It's just bread and juice. It's just people will get wet tonight. They won't know any of the theology of it. But wouldn't you think the people who know the theology would show up to do it and celebrate it? I mean, anywhere. I think of the baptisms when we were in Cuba. We baptized twice a day. Grant and uh, Sean did the baptisms. And uh, preached twice a day, uh, baptized in every, you can't, man, we had him in a river with the oxen and the streams running through and uh, people, but they baptized, but when they were going that water, I said, somebody is celebrating. They've been united to Christ. They've been forgiven. They belong to Christ, and I don't care how muddy the river is or how many other oxen are there or how many bystanders. I know the theology being acted out because I got the inside scoop. I know what that means. It's not a silly little thing of dunking. See, if you don't believe your Bible... You wouldn't know what you have in Christ, would you? I didn't know when I got saved that he had chosen me. I chose him. Right? We all felt we chose him. Then you get in the body and say, by the way, I chose you a long time back. How dare you, God? I thought it was my choice. Well, I let you think it was your choice, but I was back there. I, I, 
You know, it's just like telling your dad, how dare you have me? I didn't want to be born. You had nothing to do with it. Matter of fact, had I helped it, I might have chose different myself. <laughs> Don't get too cocky. Uh, verse 26, it's not only a proclamation. It's something that anticipates his coming. He said in Luke, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You know, the Lord's Supper is the representation of an absent Savior who is coming again. And uh, I'm often struck with the fact that we're going to have a celebration meal with Jesus Christ himself when we see him. Either the marriage supper of the Lamb, maybe when it gets all the redeemed of the ages in. I don't think it's necessarily the moment I die, but when he has that marriage supper, it's the supper for the bride. And uh, Luke says something that always astounds me. I thought of some of the symbols of Christ. One of the symbols of Christ, Dallas Seminary has it. They've got Christ kneeling with the towel on as one of their marquees out in the student plaza. And, and you've, got, you've got God kneeling and washing a dirty man's feet. And he said in Luke 12, he will gird the towel again to serve a meal to his bride. Uh, that moves me to think uh, after the cross, he would still gird the towel, that he would still uh, want to serve his bride any way he could. You see, the engagement ring of Christ to the church is the Holy Spirit. He gave you the down payment, and that's, that's the ring. I'm engaged. I know I'm in. I've got the spirit in there that any time I'm not focusing on Jesus, my bridegroom, that the Spirit begins to remind me, uh, you're engaged, uh, it's not all over yet, I'm just the deposit, the king is coming, and there's going to be a supper, there's going to be a celebration, and it's not all, we're just taking communion until we take it with him in his kingdom. And what a day that will be. So it's anticipatory of, I'll do it until, uh, I'm not quite satisfied until I get to do it with him, but the Spirit can make real the symbols behind the elements. Uh, he said it's something to take serious, and he tells them uh, it's the Lord's table, it's not man's table. Some denominations, some churches won't let you take communion with them unless you belong to their denomination. I just make the emphasis, it's the Lord's table. If you belong to the Lord, it's, it's your entitlement. You get to come to it. If you come with us tonight, we won't ask you what label you're from. We'll say, do you know Christ? Do you love Christ? Take it with us. It's his supper. Uh, it's only for those who are believers. It would be sacrilege to do something that you've never believed for yourself, that you've never received Jesus Christ. But, oh, I beg of you to receive him. He died in your place. He, he became a man. And, oh, the first time you get to take communion, what a joy it is. And I think of my nephew, Marty, 
had years there of being out of church. What a night it was when he got right with the Lord. And to get back to a table he hadn't been able to come to for probably 10 to 15 years, maybe longer. And I finally get to take it. And he and my brother and Ted Montoya took it right back there. I'm back. I could celebrate a crucified Christ who died in my place to heal my rebellion, to heal me of a lost heart, and bring me back to the table. It's the place where we uh, restore people who have gone through church discipline. It's at the Lord's table we restore them. There's nothing like it. Tonight, we'll be removing a lady that has abandoned her husband and her children and is a member, and we have to turn her over to the Lord. So it's also a place where we grieve for those who've been picked off and pray for their restoration. Uh, how should you take the Lord's Supper? Take it in a worthy manner. Let your motive be serious. Uh, discern that the body is represented by the bread, that the blood of the Lord, which is his cross work, is represented in a cup. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it must not be taken lightly or without discernment. You must know the meaning. And this is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we would have judged ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. And then he clarifies, our judgment is not judicial, in which we're sentenced to hell, but it's family discipline. It's a form of divine discipline because we don't want to be condemned with the world, and to be condemned with the world is to be lost. So he says, in mean, his own family that is not discerning what they're doing, he does some divine discipline uh, that even touches their physical lives. And uh, the early church was some church. Here's a church with all kinds of problems, all kinds of uh, class warfare, divisions, cliques. And even in the church that I think in my own heart, God forbid that I ever have to pastor a Corinthian church. A Californian went hard enough with all the sin in our culture. But to think that God is moving through your membership and eliminating people's lives under fatherly discipline. Divine, I don't want you to be condemned with the world, so I'll take your life. I don't want you to go any further away from me, so I'll take your life now. I'll discipline you in death and in loving discipline, despair you going away. Uh, I might have to cripple you to get your attention. That is very threatening, very scary. But the verse seems to say, he did it to them. Uh, I have to say this. I don't think God would spare anything to get your love and devotion and to keep you serious about him. I just soon cooperate. One of the blessings of being the youngest, I already knew he would spank. 
I had living witnesses in front of me. And they would describe beatings that I was not present, thank the Lord. I got the message, just because you're the spoiled baby, you will get it. And they would torture me with that, especially David or, or Hazel. You little brat, you get, if I'd done that, I'd got spanked twice. Well, he was wearing out. He was wearing out. That's what's great for the baby. They're wearing out. The right arm was going. But guess what? He didn't have to tell me over twice because I knew he would discipline. And you know what? I know God will discipline, and it doesn't scare me. It just tells me I want to stay close. Because what you learn when you get spankings, the more you hug their body, the harder it is for it to hurt. The further away you get, it hurts more. All children learn this. You go out, and that leather hits. You, go, you get in, and you grab the leg, and you say, Daddy, Daddy. And then it's like that, and you get a break. All children, you tell them that. How many of you learned that early? Stay close, and it won't sting. Stay close. So, uh, I'm telling you, he's saying stay close because I don't want to have to condemn you. I've, I didn't save you to beat on you. I saved you to get your love, your affection, and your attention. Please, please, don't turn away. A remarkable piece of church history is when Calvin was pastor in Geneva. There was a group in the church that were the Libertines and... Uh, it was very common in Geneva at that time that was such a city of immorality that most all the men had a mistress on the side and still took communion. And uh, one man, they had discipline, or they didn't really discipline. Uh, Calvin had just got the word uh, out to him that uh, you will not be taking communion as long as I'm pastor. Well, he was a uh, politician and was in favor, and it was a state church thing. So this guy appealed to the city council who overruled Calvin's church. And so they said, you can take communion anytime you want. Have as many mistresses as you want. Practice as much adultery as you want. We don't care. You get to take it. And they made it a governmental edict. Well, this man brought his party of libertines to the Lord's table. And they arrived. And they were going to throw Calvin down. And this is what happened. The sermon had been preached. The prayers had been offered. And Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him, and he was not ready to distribute them to the communicants quite at that time. Then on a sudden rush was begun by the troublers in Israel in the direction of the communion table. This libertine and his followers rushed to take over the communion table. Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege while his voice rang through the building. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take, my blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of the Lord. And the men were repulsed, and they left, and the rest of the church took it with solemn meaning. That uh, 
If you don't want to live for Jesus, and if you're in sin, and you don't want to examine your heart, if you hate your brother in your heart, if you're in some kind of sin that cost Christ his death, and you won't deal with that, may the uh, communion be a checkpoint in your heart to say, leave your worship time, be reconciled to your brother, go apologize to the girl if you've used her, go ask your brother to forgive you, don't come flippantly to a table that cost the Son of God his life. Examine yourself. Now know this, none of us take it worthily. It's a bad translation. It's a worthy manner that we take it in a, our worthiness is all in Jesus. He's my righteousness, I have none other. But I at least wanna take him serious and if he points out sin, it's just a healthy thermometer of my spiritual gauge. Where are you with the Christ of Calvary? Where are you with a God who would stoop to take a body? What does he mean? The ritual is meaningless unless you love him, unless you want to obey him, unless you want to discern him. Our Father, we tremble at the truths entrusted, the symbols given. I think of my, our, our Jewish people rehearsing a Passover for centuries. And now we've been given for 2,000 years a uh, far greater celebration a greater slavery have we been delivered from than Pharaoh. Long my imprisoned soul was in a dungeon in a dark cave and a long night. But Jesus came, broke the chain, became the propitiating mercy seat. He is my mercy seat. It's not just a place anymore, it's a person. For Christ is our propitiation. I run to him. He is our forgiveness and our acceptance. May anyone here, Lord, that has never run to Jesus as the forgiving sacrifice, rent the veil that blinds, break the chains that bind, and give them the gift of eternal life just because of your eternal love. We ask for you to do this. And as we come back tonight to actually take the Lord's Supper and to celebrate baptism, may we come rejoicing that we can celebrate and rehearse the gospel just in these wonderful symbols of the death, resurrection, and regeneration truths that are taught in them. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.